Hello and welcome. I'm Trepid Man, and you're listening to the 40 Card College Podcast, a podcast about advancing your limited game, whether you're a first-time drafter or trophy master. So today on the podcast, we have a lot of stuff going on. Now, uh, the Pro Tour is back, so as of this recording, uh, Reduke actually just took it all down. Uh, there was a lot of high-stakes limited magic there that you can definitely check out um, on the videos on demand, so I definitely recommend you checking that out if you... Uh, missed any of it. It definitely was a lot of hype. Um, but here we're going to be talking today uh, a little bit about best of one versus best of three. I've had a unique experience uh, that the two formats have been very different with for actually all will be one. So we'll be talking a little bit about that. Then there's going to be a lot of numbers because I'm going to be looking at all of the data so far that's come out uh, through 17 lands, we're going to be talking about the best commons, uncommons, the worst ones, what's overrated, what's underrated. So there's going to be a lot of data coming your way so that we can help you, you know, get better immediately at uh, one drafts and you can be jumping in knowing what to be taking in your very next draft. Before we get to all of that, a uh, quick word on the Patreon. Uh, so this show is listener supported via the Patreon and I want to thank all the patrons already supporting the show. I really appreciate your support. Everything here, the resources with this podcast will always be free. You can find everything else at 40cardcollege.com, including the articles and links to the YouTube and uh, t uh, Twitch and just everything there. If you found value and you do want to give back, um, get access to some bonus perks. The Patreon's there for you. So some of those perks, uh, draft log review, weekly uh, review of your draft logs, shout outs on the podcast, uh, all the way up to coaching sessions. And then something that's actually free, you don't have to be a patron, is to join the Discord. So the link is in the show notes. The Discord has been popping off lately. Uh, it's been a lot of fun sharing trophy decks, uh, doing what's the builds with everyone. So just really a vibrant community that continues to grow. And it's a lot of fun hanging out with all of the Discord folks over there. So going to continue enjoying that. And if you want to hop on in, uh, it's a great place to be. No questions of the week this week. That is a patron perk. Uh, so we're going to go straight into our crack-a-pack. Now, again, eventually we might be looking at maybe like picks, you know, one through four, doing whole draft logs. But uh, what I've done here is just opened up a pack. And I just want to go through it. That way you get a sense of kind of where my thoughts are on the format, where I, when I'm looking at a pack. So going through this, Gataxian Raptor, that's the two and a blue one four flyer that has oil and you can remove them to give it plus one minus one. A decent card, uh, be pretty un unhappy to first pick it. Bladegraft Aspirant, two and a red for the two three menace. Uh, cost makes equipment spells cost one less. Equipping onto it costs one less. Uh, this card I've actually found to be pretty decent in the red-white equipment deck. However, it's one of those types of cards that's like very, very narrow. So we talk a lot about the specific archetypes and how you really want to have everything focused in the same direction with this set in particular. And so taking Bladegraft Aspirants at early at all is kind of a recipe for disaster because it's good, but it's not that good, and it really only goes in one deck. Next up, we have Ickerspit Basilisk, two and a green for the 1-3 Basilisk. It has Death Touch and Toxic 1. Been a bit of an underperformer. Um, the main thing is it doesn't attack very well, and it's an okay blocker, but it also just easily trades with things, and you don't want a card that's mostly defensive, especially one that isn't really cheap. You can kind of get away with a card that's more defensive if it's only like one or two mana, like, for example, Glistener Seer, the uh, single blue for an 0-3. 
that card is only defensive, but it's only a single mana, so it's reasonable. So the Basilisk has been kind of underperforming, um, not a card I'm really looking at. Charge of the Mites, two and a white for the instant that can deal damage equal to number of creatures you control or make two mites at instant speed. Uh, has had some interesting uses. Uh, you do usually want to have some use for the Toxic, um, although it is kind of an interesting split card in blue-white also where if you have enough Eye of Malkators, you can use the Charge of the Mites to use the eyes defensively. Um, but you kind of want to have that plus a lot of go wide plans to be able to deal the damage. So you do want to make sure that you can use both halves of the card. Um, not a card I've loved, but a card that I think is is passable. Zealot's Conviction, uh, single white for the plus one plus one aura. Um, and if you have Corrupted, the uh, creature also gets plus one plus oh and first strike on top of that. Uh, it is a card, actually I haven't seen it cast too often, and surprisingly, as good as Military Discipline is, the Zealot's Conviction has not exactly filled the right, the same role. I think partly Corrupted is harder to get online than we kind of thought looking at the set, and the more cards you put in your deck that don't actually have Toxic or generate Poison Counters, kind of the worse these types of cards are going to be. So the fact that you don't always get the first strike means that Zealot's Conviction um, kind of pulls its punches a little bit less uh, than Military Discipline did, respectively, in Brothers War. In addition, um, the premier uh, pump spell in white is going to be Complete Devotion, so the Zealot's Conviction gets a little less good from that standpoint. Next up, we have Icar Synthesizer, one in a blue for a 1-3, and whenever you cast a non-creature spell, it gets the oil counters, and once you have four or more on it, it gets plus two, plus zero, and can't be blocked. Card has been okay. Again, it's a cheap enough body that it can um, block early and, and eventually does turn into a threat. It is a blue oil-based card, so its natural homes are probably blue-green and blue-red, which puts it in a pretty awkward spot because those aren't very good decks. Um, however, it, it is, I think, pretty good in those decks. So if you, for some reason, happen to end up in those lanes, and maybe as the format matures, Acre Synthesizer will be a little bit better. So far, nothing I'm happy to first pick. Um, let's see. Next, we have Tyranix Atrocity. Three green green for the 4-4 four, four haste, Toxic 3. Just an all-around, like, pretty decent card. Can be quite good in either green white or green black as a curved topper. Um, but you don't, obviously don't want it in um, green red or green blue. So, again, it goes in kind of half the green decks. And then you also have other good 5-drops like Basilica Shepherd in white so the atrocity is often not a priority and then in black you also have the proliferator the 4-4 that proliferates when it enters and dies so basically the more five drops that you could take the, the less important any one of them is so if you end up with one of these it's fine but never something you're like going out of your way to pick next we have vanished into eternity it's the two and a white removal spell to exile target non-land permanent um, but it costs three more if it targets a creature it's just too mana inefficient. Uh, you usually don't want to play this card. If you have like no other removal and your curve is decent so that you can support paying six mana to remove uh, a creature, it can be fine as a 23rd playable. Um, but generally you're going to want to avoid that one. All right, here's finally a common I'm excited about. Barbed Batterfist. One in red for the uh, four Mirrodin equipment. Uh, gives the creature plus one, minus one, and equip one. So basically the three one um, for two. And you can move it around. I've been really impressed with Barb Batterfist. Uh, it's one of the top red commons. Uh, basically, just having a play on turn two, but then also getting utility out of the equipment later in the game is really, really nice. 
And I pick this card pretty aggressively, and I'm happy to play a lot of copies of it. Also goes wonderfully in red-white. Talked about how I really like it in red-black too, because it gives you multiple sacrifice materials. Because it's a pretty innocuous equipment itself, sacrificing the artifact is not a huge cost, because really you're mostly paying for the 2-2 body. Um, so yeah, Barbatterfist so far, best common for sure out of the pack. Our last common is Shielder's Head Cleaver. Three and a black for the 2-4 Menace, Toxic 2. Uh, this card... Mostly the problem is that it's in black, which in my opinion is the worst color. I actually think blue is better than black, but those are obviously the bottom two. But also this card, it kind of wants to be aggressive, right? Because it's a menace creature. The toxic two really, you want to be toxicing with it. Um, but it's not that aggressive because although it has menace, it only has two power. So it gets double blocked pretty easily. I will note it is a nice combo with offer immortality, the death touch trick. But outside of that, it's not fantastic, and oftentimes you can get better things for four mana. So it's a card that I really would not want to prioritize. And really, I think the only home for it is maybe white-black specifically, where you really care about Corrupted, and it can uh, get there pretty quickly. Like if your opponent has the one poison counter, this threatens to corrupt them immediately. But in terms of just dealing the toxic damage for the win, I don't think it's where you want to be at. Okay, so our uncommons. Let's see if we can do better than a Bar Batter Fist. We have Hex Gold Hover Wings. Three and a white, four Mirrodin equipment. Equipped creature has flying, and the equipped creatures you control that are equipped get plus one, plus oh. Equipped two and a white. So you get your four mana three, two that you can move around and pump all your four Mirrodin uh, creatures. I think it is better than Bar Batter Fist. Now, it's a little bit tricky because it is four mana versus the two, but it gives a direction, which I think is a really powerful thing in the format, where, again, you kind of want to have a synergy... Uh, payoff direction so that you can build towards it if possible. In addition, the Hex Gold Hover Wings, I really like it um, in blue-white or white-red. And so the fact that it can go in multiple decks is really fantastic. So that would be my pick so far. Um, then we have Thrumming Bird. One in a blue for the 1-1 one -one Flyer whenever it deals damage to a player proliferate. Just been a little bit awkward uh, because you really want to get a lot of oil synergies with the proliferate. Or you want to be able to continue toxicing onto your opponent over and over again and giving them poison counters with Thrumming Bird. But it itself doesn't really do any of that. So you kind of already have to be winning for Thrumming Bird to do anything at all. And so for that reason, I think it's just not a very good card. And I don't want to pick Thrumming Bird aggressively, especially also because it's like a narrow blue card, which is a bad place to be because it's in one of the worst colors and it's also... No, I'm not very flexible. Then our last uncommon is Drown in Icker, the one in a black sorcery at uncommon. Target creature gets minus four, minus four until end of turn and proliferate. So this is definitely the best card we've seen. Again, I don't like starting in black or blue if I can avoid it, but it is, I think, better enough than the Hex Gold Hover Wings. For only two mana, getting to kill almost anything is just a really good deal. Um, it also does tack on that proliferate. I've seen some really nice like blue-black toxic decks that just have all two drops and interact early and often and then just win by kind of burning the opponent out with the proliferate. Uh, and Drenna Nicker is a pretty key piece to that. So if you do have the really, really good cards kind of at uncommon and rare, I think uh, black decks can be successful. Same with blue decks. Um, so Drenna Nicker would be my pick here because I think Hex Gold Hoverings requires a little bit more setup. Our rare is Jorkadine first Gold Warden. The red-white 2-2 um, signpost rare has trample. Whenever it attacks, gets plus X plus X until in a turn where X is the number of quick creatures you control. 
than if its power is for a greater draw card. A decent card, definitely really good in the red-white deck. I'm not opposed to taking um, a double-colored card first in this set if they're good enough. And Jorkadine sometimes could be good enough, especially out of a weaker pack. But we have some pretty good cards here. So I'm just going to take Drown and Icker um, and be happy with that. That's how I would first pick out of this pack. All right, so diving into our main topics, the first kind of subtopic that I wanted to talk about uh, was is best of one versus best of three in Freksha Obi Wan drafts. So I started off with best of one drafts, and I did okay, but not great. Um, and I think that led to kind of a negative reaction in terms of the games I was having to play out. So it wasn't really my you know lower win rate that was the problem. Best of one, but. What I was feeling in best of one was that you always had to kind of curve out starting on like turn one or two all the way up to, uh, you know, turn four or five even. And it put a lot of pressure on the draft portion and the build and the games themselves to be able to interact early and often and participate in sort of that curve out. And then part of the problem is, is that even if you did all that, with this set, there are a few mana sinks, especially like the four mirrored and equipment, and I really value them in best of one for that reason. Um, but there's not a ton. And so what could happen is you can have, you know, you can curve out perfectly, your opponent does that, and then it can kind of come down to whoever happens to not flood out or who happens to draw a bomb or play a bomb on curve. And so that nature of bombs in the format felt very amplified in best of one. Not to mention that I think a lot of the bombs are answerable by specific answers in the format, which means sideboarding in this set in particular is particularly rewarding. Cards like Molten Rebuke, that four on a red, it can deal five damage to a creature or Planeswalker and it's destroying equipment. Well, if your opponent has, you know, a Bladehold War Whip and you really want to blow that up um, and kill something else, suddenly that card's very good, but maybe you don't want to play it main deck. Or... I've also, you know, my opponent has had Nissa before, um, and so I want to be able to answer that Nissa, or at least, you know, combo that with a different card with the removal, especially if they play Nissa on five, to be able to kill that. So I'd board that in out of the sideboard. So I felt like sideboarding so far has been a big piece, but also not having to worry about that one to four curve because of the hand smoother is has really been important in this set for my enjoyment of it. So switching over to best of three, I feel like has just made the format much more approachable. You can do a lot more. And the thing about best of one is if you don't have a play by turn two, you just literally had to mulligan because you know your opponent is going to be doing that. And if you fall behind and you're not playing anything, especially like till turn three on the draw, you're basically going to lose every single one of those games. However, in best of three, um, because there isn't a hand smoother, your opponent's not always going to have that perfect curve out. So you don't have to literally mulligan everything. And because you don't have to mulligan everything, um, you can actually draft in a way where you have a wider range of opening hands, um, where you don't always have to react to that curve out. And because you can have a wider range of opening hands, you can actually draft a wider range of, of decks that don't have to fit that exact curve out mentality. And you can actually plan for maybe getting to like five or six mana and ways for when a game does go long, because often they do go longer in best of three, um, to pack a little bit more of that flood insurance into the deck itself so you don't feel that effect as the format as much and it gives those mid-range and control decks a little bit more options uh, again partly because of the sideboarding but also if you have a mid-range or control deck in best of one 
Um, those are the types of decks that can't afford to mulligan because they need a bunch of lands and spells to be able to take over the game with like three, four, five mana plays. And so you have to keep a wider range of hands with those types of decks because they don't mulligan very well. Um, whereas if you're more aggressive, you can mulligan because you can function on maybe two or three lands for a lot longer. And because the best one hand smoother often gives you, you know, two or three lands, uh, much more than like five or six lands, it's going to encourage leaner aggro decks more often, which is true across all formats. But in a format that is as assertive and sort of bomb driven as one is, it becomes much more, uh, it, it intensifies that nature of the hand smoother much more than some other sets. And, you know, I don't mind best of one magic. In fact, I've been, you know, I've been playing a lot of it. And I thought, uh, especially the last few sets, it was totally fine in terms of best of one. And there's even some sets where I, it almost makes no difference. Like if I look at Dominar United, because that set encourages a wide range of strategies, and some of them happen to be like more mid-rangey and is more mid-range battles, it didn't really matter the hand smoother as much because, yeah, you'd have like, you know, between your two and four lands, you wouldn't have to mulligan as much. Um, but that didn't necessarily mean it was only curve outs, right? I mean, one of the best decks in that format was Wing Mantle Chaplain, and you were playing a bunch of four-mana one-threes to go find your Wing Mantle Chaplains. So, I mean, that format itself didn't really lend itself to this crazy assertive hand-smoother nonsense because the assertive cards just weren't really there. Now, I think that was kind of an anomaly, but if we if we contrast that to to what I'm seeing in Frexia All Weekly 1, you really have to make sure that you have the interactive pieces early um, so you don't get run over in best of one. Whereas they're still important in best of three because it is still the same format. You can't just not do anything. I'm still probably building my decks mostly the same way. Um, maybe just a couple less two drops in best of three. Like I'm okay having maybe four two drops rather than seven or eight. Um, and so that just opens up room in the rest of my deck. But I, you know, I prefer to still play a two drop and get the ball rolling. So that's where I'm at right now. I mean, I've had a lot of success in best of three lately. I feel like it, it just, the games are more interesting. Um, but hey, if you're having a lot of fun in best of one, you know, props to you, keep it going and uh, go get that mythic in the ladder. So that's my little uh, comment on where I'm at right now with best of one versus best of three in one. And so for the rest of the episode, I'm going to be talking a lot about cards and numbers um, and what's doing well and what you want to avoid. And so it is going to be kind of chunky uh, compared to some episodes where I'm talking a lot about the 17 lands data. But I think it's important that we have this particular episode to go through these data points so that when you're sitting down to do your drafts, you know what you're looking for. Uh, you know, like the proven strategies, the proven cards and what you want to draft. One thing about the data on 17 lands is that when you have a good card and it's having good stats across the board, it means that when you just put that card in your deck, it's just going to do well. Like you're not usually going to have really, really, really narrow cards that require like maybe a lot of setup or these types of things performing at really high rates because players of all skill levels are going to be playing these same cards and if it has a really high win rate then players are going to be putting it in a wide range of decks some that are less or more supporting and so if it still has a high win rate it probably just means there's not a lot of work to it you just play the card and it's good on the cards that aren't very good some of those cards players are going to be putting them in spots that just you know are bringing down that card's win rate overall 
because it only goes in a very specific style deck. So what's going to be nice is that when we look through the individual cards today, if we see a card that has a really poor win rate, but it's very synergy specific, then we can talk about the merits of, well, well maybe you're going to play this card in certain decks and it actually is not going to be too bad. Um, but we have to weigh that versus just what's the power level of the card overall. So it kind of still requires a lot of critical thinking. And so while I'm going to be telling you kind of the rankings of the cards so far and, you know, their stats and all that kind of stuff, what's really important is that we look at the context of it and decide, is this a card that's actively bad and you want to avoid it? Or are there spots for it? And what are those scenarios? So we'll get to dive into that a bit today. Um, before we jump into that, I want to go through the archetypes and where they're standing overall. Now, if you look at all of the archetypes across the 17 land data, that includes every single color pair, all the, you know, splashes, three color decks, four color, etc. every single deck, the average win rate of a deck of a 17 lands user right now is 54.9%. So roughly we can just round that up to 55%. So when we look at the individual card rates or win percentages, if they're above 55%, it means they're actually actively helping your win rate for that deck overall on average. And if they're below that win rate, they're actively bringing down your win rate on average. Um, so that's just kind of the how the math works on all of that. Um, in addition, I've been talking about how I've really enjoyed best of three lately. Um, it's kind of opened up the play patterns and allows me to try different things in the set that I haven't been able to do in best of one. That being said, the data that I'm presenting is based on the best of one data uh, only. And the reason for that is pretty straightforward. The number of times the, the commons, the cards have been seen when you compare them across the best of one data set versus the best of three. In best of one, these cards have been seen in games eight to 10 times as much as the best of three data. So to avoid, you know, small sample size bias, in fact, I waited about a week to be able to bring you this data this week. That's why we're going to be going with the best of one data, because there's just more to look at. But maybe in three or four weeks, it could be interesting where I'm not, it, as the format settles, we might start to see a different picture between the best of one and the best of three data um, as time goes on. I think you just need to have enough data in the best of three set setup so that there's not too many artifacts from small sample sizes. Okay, with all of that out of the way, um, what we're going to be doing in terms of the, the data that I'm going to bring you today, we're going to do the top 10 and bottom 10 commons and uncommons but then also we're going to be looking at the top 10 and um, bottom 10 over and underrated cards which is a little bit different and i'll get to that once i get to that component so let's let's talk about how the archetypes are doing and then we'll jump right into our top 10s and bottom 10s so there's you know 10 two color pairs and so the number 10, which means the worst performing archetype, is Demir. And Demir is at a 51.6% win rate, which is quite below the 55% average. Number 9 is Izet, so that's uh, 52%. You already have two blue decks in the, the bottom two. So that's just kind of telling you what's going on there. Um, number 8 is Golgari at 52.1, so pretty much around that Izet level. And then you have Simic 
which is green-blue for 52.6%. So you have 52 and 51% um, win rates for the bottom four decks. Now, notably, three of those bottom four decks are blue. Um, two of them are black and two of them are green. Uh, only one of those decks includes white or red. So it really points to white and red being head and shoulders, kind of the place you want to start in the format uh, if you're deciding between two cards that are comparable. When we were looking at our pick one, pack one, I, you know, I was thinking between the Hover Wings and the Drowninicker. I feel like Drowninicker is that much better than the Hover Wings, but if it was like, you know, an ossification, well, Drowninicker and ossification, both removal spells, I take the ossification there every time just because I think white, you know, white decks are going to be performing a whole lot better than green, black, and blue. Okay, number six is Rakdos at 53.8%. Um, then we have uh, Azorius in number five, but mostly artifacts, but sometimes toxic, 54.8% for those. Um, Ortsov at 56.1%. So that's the first one that's above the average, which is worth noting. Number three, Celestia at 56.7%. Boros, 57.8%. And Gruul at a whopping 58.5%. Um, so then if we look at the top five um four of the top five are white decks so literally two through five all including white um and then uh, the top two are both red decks um, but specifically the red green and red white so if you're in red just statistically looking half of the red decks are going to perform way better than the other half of the red decks whereas if you're you're in white um you're going to win pretty at, at a pretty high rate regardless of what white deck you end up in however all those white decks care deeply about what types of cards they include because if you look at boros celestia ors of azorius they have very very distinct um flavors and uh, needs per deck so your boros deck is not going to have the same cards as your Orzov deck is as going to have the same cards as your azorius deck so even though they all include white it doesn't necessarily mean like oh i'll just play a white card and it doesn't matter where it ends up um you have to kind of think in mind still what those decks require so you don't gain that much of a boost by starting with like a white card over a red card even though the red cards only two of the red decks are super performing uh, at the top now if we look at the decks that i went over last week I, I did the five decks i was comfortable talking about last week which was gruel boros celestia azorius and rakdos those five decks are five out of the top six. So it makes sense that that's what I was seeing a lot, winning a lot, and playing with a lot, uh, because that's just having the most success in the format. The only one that I hadn't played with a ton or quite figured out at the time was Ortsov. And I, I'm still kind of trying to figure that one out because it's unclear exactly how aggressive or mid-range you want to be in terms of corrupting your opponent and poisoning, counting them out. Maybe we'll talk about that at a different time. But Basically, if you end up starting with red or white cards, you're setting yourself up to be very successful in the format. And with the green cards, if you end up in red, green, or green, white, often pretty successful too, because that's two of the top three decks. But you have to be a little bit careful, because unless you really know what you're doing with those green cards, Simic and Golgari are in the bottom four. So it's kind of an interesting split where red and white are relatively safe compared to these other colors. With that out of the way, um, it is kind of a Naya world we're living in, especially in Best of One. 
Um, but let's look at the uh, top 10 and bottom 10 commons across the board. So the number 10 common by Game in Hand win rate is Hazardous Blast at 57.5%. The three in a red deal one to your opponent's board and your opponent can't block this turn. It's just a very swingy card, but both halves of the card happen to be good in the format. Because there's a lot of mites and a decent amount of X1s with not that many ways to punish the X1s, the sweeping one damage often can take out one to two things on its own. And then you can sometimes use this as a way to chip in like five or six damage in the mid portions of the game while doing a little mini sweeper effect. However, you know, if if you're kind of racing one another and this happens to be the card you play on turn seven, when your opponent's at seven life, this is just going to kill them every single time. So it has a pretty good win rate uh, and it goes very, very late. So Hazardous Blast at number 10. Number nine is Indoctrination Attendant, 57.6% game in hand win rate. This is the 3-4 Toxic 1 um, for three and a white. And when it comes to play, you can bounce uh, one of your permanents to make a might. Just really a solid role player across the board. It plays with the artifact synergies. It allows you to pick up the four Mirrodin equipment. It helps continue the train with Toxic, although this card having Toxic in general is a detriment just because of Hex Gold Slash. So I think if it didn't have Toxic, it, it would be an even better card. But uh, that aside, it also helps ward off uh, some of the removal in this format too, uh, specifically the white and blue aura-based removals that your opponent could be playing. So it just has a ton of flexible utility and is a really the four drop that you want in your white decks. Because of that, if you do happen to see other four drops, they're a little bit less precious because you want to prioritize this card because it is so good. Um, so when you know you're in white, you kind of want to be looking for the indoctrination attendance. It also just has other combos, like it resets your incubation sack. Um, maybe it picks up a flinting raptor to jump something in the air again. It just does a lot of small things. And and then the 3-4 body is actually pretty nice because it bridges the gap from sort of the three threes of the format to um, the more expensive cards. So at four mana, it often locks down the board until maybe turn until your opponent gets to play a four or five drop. And so it, it is a nice stabilizer as well. So it plays well on offense and defense, which I think is really important in this format. Number eight is Furnace Strider at 57.6%. So tied with the indoctrination in terms of um, the win rate here. This is the four, five for five in red um, that, that hastes up to two times because the oil counters. Uh, it's just a really uh, great 5-drop. It it can play very aggressively, but the 4-5 body also blocks really, really well. Um, that 5th toughness is super key because there are some 4-4s four running around, but it's really hard to double block this if you're not ready for it. Um, because of the creature sizing, like I said, in the format, um, you know, oftentimes your opponent, for whatever reason, when I see this card, they can only, you know, have 4 power. And I think it's just because of the way that the games play out and you're attacking back and forth. And um, so it's very hard to have five power on defense the turn it comes down. And then the fact that it hastes the next thing means you basically win the race every single time with this card, um, especially if you get to haste like some crazy six drop, like a Silvok battle chair or whatever. Um, and so that's just a huge way to slam the door shut on games and also catch up and move ahead in terms of a race. So Furnace Strider is excellent. If you're not picking this card, Again, it's kind of the premium five drop or or one of the premium five drops. So you want to be looking out for that one. And it makes some of the other five drops less necessary. At number seven is planar disruption. This is the white arrest for the one in a white. And at 58% win rate, uh, it just does exactly what it 
promises and you just can use this to either play aggressively or defensively in best of one particularly it's it allows you to have a defensive play on turn two if you need it but also can trade up on mana big time like it can lock down like a four or five drop allow you to swing and then maybe uh double spell uh so it just fits nicely uh in the format overall because interaction is so key at either catching you up or pushing ahead uh, it just happens to be premium in this format and also the really good removal it's cheap right so we're gonna see sort of the one and two mana removal spells really overperforming in the set because like i said they kind of allow you to get that double spell play but also more importantly they allow you to not just get run over because while you don't want to play your planar disruption on your opponent's two drop it is a totally viable thing that you want, you can and will want to do when you have a three and four drop in hand and you're not going to get a chance to play your planar disruption again until like maybe turn five. Often locking down to two drop is a really nice thing to do because it allows you to not fall behind in the game and get snowballed. At number six, I already talked about how I love this common. It's Bar Batterfist, 58.1%, really high for what looks to be just a two mana three one. But the fact that it's a 2-mana 3-1 with a ton of upside is just great. I'd basically play any number of them, and 2-drops are a premium in the format. So Barbatterfist, go for it, uh, and take them early and often. At number 5, Hexgold Slash at 58.5%. There was a little bit of a debate whether Hexgold Slash or Volt Charge was the better red common when the set first came out. And I think I was even on the side of Volt Charge, but... A couple problems with Volt Charge is that the proliferate often doesn't really matter enough. And the deal three, you're often just trading even on mana. Like it'll kill other, you know, three threes or whatever from your opponent. But you're not really getting a mana advantage most of the time. Um, unless maybe you're killing uh, like the four mana Mantis in green or something like that. And Whereas Hexgold Slash always trades up on mana. And the fact that you can kill X4 toxic creatures means... Sometimes you're killing like four and five mana plays from your opponent for a single red mana, which just pulls you way ahead in the game. And because it only costs a single red um, and it's kind of that shock variant, you're not unhappy to play it on your opponent's two or three drop either. You're still getting a mana advantage there, probably developing your board in addition to that. I mean, it's just an incredible card. Um, I had a deck once where I could have played four of them and I only put three in my deck, but... I pretty much boarded into the fourth every single time it was that good. Um, there are some decks where it's not as good against. Uh, Blue-White specifically, it's a little bit weaker because uh, those artifacts are often based around Eye of Malkator and the uh, Flying Sentry, which is the Blue-White Golden Common. Um, both of those don't have Toxic, and they have a lot of toughness. So it can sometimes have diminishing returns, but against the majority of the format, uh, it's fantastic. It also is not the best against Gruul, and Gruul is the best deck in the format. So Hexgold Slash being a little bit awkward there means you can't just play all the one, like you can't just take only Hexgold Slashes as your removal spells. Besides that, it's very, very, very good and answers a wide range of cards in the format. So uh, basically going to be the best common out of a ton of packs when you see it um, because it offers you that flexibility with interaction um, and even though um, some of these other cards are better than it that I'm about to talk about even though it only has the fifth best win rate if I was going to pick one pack one a common it's probably going to be hex gold slash over these other cards uh, because it allows you to just 
draft a much wider range of decks uh, and is always going to be fantastic. Whereas some of these other cards are also amazing, but they aren't as flexible as the Slash, which I really, really value in the format. Number four is Basilica Shepherd, 58.7%. This is the 3-3 Flyer 5 that brings along two Mites. Uh, it's just a stat monster flying in the air like that. Really can close the door on games. And I just talked about Hexgold Slash, how uh, it kind of kills a ton of stuff. Basilica Shepherd notably does avoid the Slash at that point. And so the 3-3 Flyer itself puts a lot of pressure. And the Mites at that point, it's kind of interesting because... While they aren't the most threatening on their own, it kind of makes it hard to race the Shepherd um, because if you already have a little bit of poison or you just can't afford to get hidden for the additional one on the ground means that the Shepherd rules the skies longer and ends up winning the game on its own. So the Mites kind of a, like an insurance policy to not get attacked as much because you're threatening much more on the crackback. Um, so just a really good card. And... That's an interesting one. Again, I probably would take Planar Disruption over it early um, because I want that interaction. But yeah, I mean, Shepherds, you kind of want as many as you can get. In the same vein, uh, but on the opposite point in the curve, number three is Crawling Chorus. This is the uh, single white for the 1-1 one, one with Toxic 1 and dies into a Mite. It just follows the, rule of the rules of the format. Anytime your opponent plays a Crawling Chorus on turn one, especially if they're on the play, you just feel really far behind. It allows for the corrupted decks to get corrupted quickly. And those decks, it's noticeably different when those decks have corrupted versus not. Some of those corrupted payoffs completely change the game. And when the cards with the corrupted don't have corrupted for the most part, um, outside of maybe like Anoint with Affliction, they just are pretty understated and underwhelming. So when you're playing against a deck that does care about their corrupted cards, namely White Black, being able to keep them off corrupted is an easy way to win. Uh, and Crawling Chorus doesn't quite ensure that, that you always have corrupted, but it, it gets pretty close to it. So anytime you're doing that, you kind of just want as many of them as you can get, and then you're pairing it with your complete devotions or other ways to push through your toxic creatures. And if you have enough of these, you, you're able to play things like Sinew Dancer, which is the one mana tapper that's terrible if you don't have corrupted but really good if you do so it pairs nicely with those types of things in the format number two chimney rabble um this is the uh three and a red for the three three haste that brings along a one one buddy again just a rate monster every time this comes down to turn four maybe you've been tacked a little bit but getting to slam in for three immediately means very quickly you're the one actually winning the race instead of being behind in the race Kind of similar to Furnace Strider, except it does it a turn earlier. And that 1-1 one, one really helps in terms of making sure that you don't lose a race. But also, it can pair up with other creatures to double block, which is huge. It also punishes X-1s, which there are some in the format. And so Chimney Rabble just... It, it really plays offense and defense fantastically at the same time. Um, so basically, it would play a deck with any number of these. Uh, it's surprising... When you think about it, that it's the number two common by win rate, but then when you just look at the way it plays out, and then the fact that most of the games are about attacking and blocking on the ground, it makes sense that two bodies, one of which is pretty reasonably sized with haste, um, ends up being as good as it is. And then number one, it's not a surprise, it's Contagious Vorak at 59.7%, uh, so almost at that 60% mark. The 
three three for two and a green that gets a land or proliferates um it again is just a rate monster but the only thing about the borak is that even though it's number one on the list it's the only green card in the top 10 commons and so you do kind of want to think about that when you're picking between the borak and some of these other cards if you take the borak it's a little bit of a risk because green is very split in terms of toxic and oil and the borak is not particularly good on either half of those. The one thing I really like about it is that it helps bridge the gap. So what I mean by that is it allows you to actually plan for the mid to late game. It combos very well if you have spheres in your deck so that you can actually plan to like two for one your opponent out and have an attrition game plan. So it's kind of this mid-range control card at common, which is very nice, but it's not particularly synergistic on anything. It's just a classic power card. And so when you take that, you just have to be a little bit careful because all the other cards on the list are like efficient answers or, you know, combine with other cards around them to really uh, produce an effect more than the sum of its parts and the vorak is basically the sum of its parts on its own like you read the card and you can tell it's ridiculous but it is less flexible than these other cards because literally the other <laughs> nine cards on the list are white or red which is insane <laughs> so in general you kind of want to start with a white or red card because there's so many good ones good ones of them whereas uh, the other colors it's a little bit more contested Let's look at the bottom 10 cards now. These are the cards you, in general you just want to avoid or there's certain use cases for them and you have to really work to bring their value up. So number 10 is Draw Skull Bomb at 49.2% win rate. This is the Black Skull Bomb. You has one sacrifice draw a card or you can pay two and a black to return a creature from your graveyard and draw a card. This one, it looks interesting, but... It kind of is really slow and clunky. And unless you have a lot of cards that care about like artifacts leaving the battlefield, like it works a lot better in black red, for example, where you can be aggressive and it's powering up all your oil creatures that when things leave, they power up there. It's going to perform a lot better than some other places. But in terms of just being a generic card, the stats aren't behind the skull bomb. Like if you're just looking to play this and try to get a two for one off of it, it just requires a lot of work to be able to set up, trade trade off your creature, bring it back, then replay it. That's just a ton of mana, a ton of time, a, a ton of work to be able to do that. Comparing that to something like Contagious Warak, you can see the 10% difference there. It's not to say that the Draw Skull Bomb is unplayable by any means. It's just that you have to think of, you have to think about the synergies that you're using it with to overcome the fact that you're paying a lot of an investment up front anyways. And you know, black in general doesn't care too much about artifacts outside of those couple things that I had mentioned. And a lot of times they're looking to like be toxic and aggressive and Skull Bomb is sort of grindy, mid-rangey. And so you just have to build your deck with that in mind. Um, at number nine is the Meldweb Curator. Uh, so this is the ninth worst common in the set. Uh, this one is the three and a blue for the three, four. Again, I like the three, four stat line kind of. But under, unlike Indoctrination Attendant, you're not getting a lot beyond that. So Meldweb Curator, when it enters, you can put an instant or sorcery on top of your deck. So you're not getting a card off of that because it's not going in your hand. There are some nice combos with it. Uh, obviously, if you have uh, spell bombs, not spell bombs, uh, skull bombs, but spell bombs. Like if you have a Blue Sun's Twilight in your deck, you could play that early to steal something small. The game goes on, then you can curate it back to the top. I've had opponents who have done that to me. It's pretty backbreaking. 
So you could have things like that where you're using it more as sort of that control enabler. If you're playing more of the burn style deck in blue, where you're playing Prologtophyresis, things like this, and the game grinds on and you're just going to win over time, then you could put something like that on top of your deck because you're still card neutral. And at that point in the game, it's worth paying some mana to be able to draw a card and give your opponent a poison counter. So you get to cast that card again. There are applications, but in general, it's kind of playing bad cards with other bad cards, which is why the card has a pretty horrible win rate. So you have to do a lot of work and make sure that the supporting cast around this card is actually worth it. Whereas, you know, if you're just playing red and white cards, you're probably going to do a whole lot better than picking a Meldwood Curator. So in general, avoid it, but there could be use cases. At number eight is Aspirant's Ascent. This is the single blue for the plus one plus three and flying and gives your creature toxic one until in the turn. The problem with this card is it's not what blue wants to do. Um, so having a combat trick is, it's a pretty good combat trick actually, but it's not an artifact card. It doesn't interact with oil other than putting oil on your creatures that, you know, get oil when you cast non-creature spells. And then the plus one power helps you kind of win combat, but not always. And the fact that it gives flying and toxic one makes it so that you can punch through some damage, but you're basically going to be down a card just to try to get the ball rolling with toxic. And so then you could proliferate after, but you're spending a whole card to do it. And it's not worth a card to do that. So you would need to be aggressive already. And the most aggressive decks uh, in blue would be tend to be, you know, blue, red, or blue, white. And blue, red cares about spells, but not toxic. And blue, white cares about artifacts usually, but not toxic. If you have the toxic build of blue, white, then the ascent could be worth it. Um, but white just has better combat tricks. So you mostly want to avoid it anyways. There are blue, black toxic decks that the most successful ones tend to be decks filled with like two drops with toxic. The thing is, with those, you're already trying to punch through early, and you have Whispers of the Dross in black, which is going to be a much more flexible, powerful card. And so that's really the one mana spell you want to be playing. So really the problem with Aspirant's Ascent is that it could fill certain roles, but it just kind of doesn't do it as well as everything else. And then the decks that would be interested in that combat trick, it's not synergistic with what those decks are doing overall. So it just doesn't really have a home. So I think this one, actually, I think you mostly just shouldn't play it. Unlike maybe the Meldweb Curator or Dross Skull Bomb, which can be good in certain spots. Um, then we have Prologue to Phoresis at number seven. Again, this is the one in a blue. Draw a card, your opponent gets a poison counter. I don't hate this card because it is a game plan because there's so much proliferate tacked on and everything. Getting your opponent that first poison counter can be a little bit tough. The problem with the card, of course, is it doesn't impact the board. So if you play this to try to get proliferate going, you can't really play it early. But as like a turn four or five play, when you play this plus still keep developing your board, it can get the ball rolling that way. And then if you have enough cheap things um, where you are kind of playing more like a blue burn deck with like blue black toxic where everything's cheap and this is actually burning your opponent out plus giving them poison counters other ways, the card's going to perform a lot better under those circumstances. But just as a cantrip, it's not a very good plan. So you have to have your deck super focused about just getting your opponent to 10 poison counters, and that's basically all that matters. Uh, number six, Thirsting Roots. Uh, this card looked pretty good because it's single green to go fetch a land from your deck or proliferate. 
The problem is proliferate is not worth a card almost ever. So then you're paying single green to go get a land from your deck. And that does enable splashes. But you can kind of think of this as basically just a tap land. And you have to have green to do it. So it's kind of like a really bad Terramorphic Expanse at that point. Because you have to have one specific color of mana to be able to go do that. And it's just not really that good. Um, you don't want to be putting a bunch of tap lands in your deck to be able to splash. Splashing in general is going to bring your win rate down in this format because you do want to be so streamlined. So in general, you do want to avoid the Thirsting Roots unless maybe you have a single pit bomb that you're splashing because I think the proliferate side of the card just is not worth trying to build towards. Um, there's other things that still are going to impact the board or develop it that are going to give you the proliferate on top of it. I did play a lot of this card early in the format, and I just found that I never ever cast it for the proliferate mode. And so if you're literally only ever casting it for the land, you better have a pretty good reason to want to be able to splash. So you can play it where there's bombs that you're splashing, but that's basically only time. And that's kind of like the last case scenario that you're going to be able to play that. Okay, at number five, uh, now we're really starting to get in some cards that are <laughs> quite bad. Mirror Kinsmith is the four mana three one that when it comes into play, go find another mirror. There's just not enough mirror in the format that are good. Um, a four mana three one is susceptible to the one damage sweepers. There's also mites, so it doesn't block it, anything. If it was a three two, then maybe you could like chain these together and play a bunch of them. Um, but it's also an artifact, so it's susceptible to that. You just can't be playing four mana for a three one, even if it draws a card. It's just not what you want to be playing. So just don't play this card. Uh, similarly, on the next one, Mirror Custodian in the Mirror Camp. This is uh, the three mana two three. You get to scry two, your opponent scries one. Problem is they get the first crack of the scry. And so, you know, they're going to get to use the advantage of that scry immediately. Also, a three mana two three is fine, but not great. We see Gold Warden's Helm, which is also a three mana two three, but at least it comes with an equipment attached to it. There's two pieces of cardboard there. And so that gives you a much better effect than this random 2-3 here. And helping your opponent is something that you generally should be against in Magic. And so, again, Mirror Custodian, really just avoid at all costs. This next one, Gitaxian Anatomist, at 46.8% has a horrible win rate. Um, this is the 3 and a blue 2-5, and you can tap it when it enters the battlefield to proliferate. I've actually found that the creature sizing on this is pretty nice. I talked about how uh, Furnace Strider as the 4-5 uh, is really, really hard to interact with in the format. Um, there's other, you know, 3 and 4 power creatures that basically are bigger than everything else. And so the 5th toughness on Gitaxan Anatomist makes it block basically everything on the ground on turn 4. And so if you're more of a defensive blue deck, I've actually been pretty happy with the Anatomist, especially if I can take advantage of the Proliferate. So while it has horrible stats, I think if you build a more defensive-oriented deck in mind, especially one that's looking to go over the top of your opponent uh, in the mid to late game, this can actually have a home. That said, it's not like an amazing card or anything, The but it does have some use cases. Like I had a blue-green deck that had this plus Evolving Adaptive, which is the single green um, one one that grows based on your creature's power and toughness uh, and how much oil it has and so that card uh, with the anatomist like grew out of control really quickly and then I already had it like as a 3-3 by the time the anatomist come down then I used the anatomist plus the proliferate to turn it into like a 5-5 five, five. 
and it, it went crazy from there. So there are places for the anatomist, but it's not most decks. Um, similarly, also like with the blue raptor, that's kind of a nice curve. The one that grows based on non-creature spells and how much oil you have, that kind of thing. So it can have a home, but it's never stellar. Um, number two, worst common uh, is Phyrexian Atlas. This is the manolith that can tap and also uh, deal your opponent damage if they're corrupted. I think this card's win rate is so low because it's basically encouraging you to splash and do nothing on turn three in a format where you want to consistently put things on the board. That being said, if you have some reason to go way over the top and want to ramp, the Atlas can be okay. I think their cases are few and far between. But if you have like a couple expensive cards that just win the game on their own, I'm thinking things like the Twilights, um, especially the white one, um, things like Kaya, things like Atraxa, just these bombs that are expensive that if you cast them, you win the game. I think you can include an Atlas and it's not horrible. But outside of that, you really just don't want to put this card in your deck. So you should know when you want it. And the number one worst performing card is Duress, a classic, right? 42.1%. That is really embarrassingly low. The single black to sorcery, look at your opponent's hand, take a non-creature spell. It's just going to whiff too often. It can be an okay sideboard card in best of three, um, but your opponent has to have enough cards for you to actually hit with it and then have to have bombs on top of it. So if you know your opponent has some of those like seven mana game ending bombs that are non-creature spells like the Twilights or Kaya that I talked about, and you can wait till maybe turn five or six to cast your duress they're holding on to that card you nab it in game two or three it can't have its uses or you know your opponent's playing a bunch of counter spells or something like there's weird use cases for duress for the most part though you just never put it in your deck in best of one and in your sideboard you need to have a pretty good reason to bring it in like i wouldn't bring it in in the dark basically ever even if i had seen a lot of spells um it has to be something like really special all right so those are our top 10 commons and uh bottom 10 commons all right, for the uncommons, these cards that are really, really good, basically, I'll have less to say about them because basically you should just take them because the win rates are so high. And as I mentioned, um, the really good cards that have really good win rates are just going to be good across the board. And so they're basically going to always do the thing. And so uh, this section actually is going to go a little faster, but I do want you to know what the top 10 uncommons are so you can look for them for your pick one pack ones. Um, at number 10, we have the Armored Scrap Gorger at 58.9% win rate. This is the one green for the O3 that can tap for any color of mana once it has, and it taps to get oil counters um, by exiling things from the graveyard and turns into a 3-3 eventually. Just a great card. Number 9, we have Hex Gold Hoverwings. Um, that's the one that we saw in our opening pack. I guess maybe I should have taken that first now that I'm looking at it. So I need to use my own homework here. It has a 59.2 win percent rate. It's also in a much better color than Drown and Nicker. So now that I'm thinking about our pick one pack one today, I'm really realizing I probably made a mistake, which is why I'm making this episode in the first place. Uh, so I didn't pay attention to my own data enough. Anyways, Hex Gold Hoverings, great card, great payoff for just going wide with the Vermeerden equipment as well. Number eight is Slaughter Singer, the 2-2 green-white gold uncommon with Toxic 2 and pumps your other Toxic creatures when they attack. Just a real standout card for that deck. Again, you want to be getting on, on the board, being assertive, and so it's just really good for the Toxic strategies. There are a few gold cards I could consider taking early. 
Obviously, if you see like a hex gold hoverwings and a slider slinger, you want to take the hoverwings because it's a single color card around the same win rate. But slider slinger at a pack where you know the commons just aren't really that powerful, like you're seeing like you know top twenty commons but not top ten commons. It's fine to speculate and take a gold card early at that power level. Number seven, Kinker Bloom. Um, this one is kind of surprising. It's the one in a green 3-2 that you can pay a mana to sack it to destroy an artifact, enchantment, or proliferate. At a two mana 3-2, that's already just above rate. And the fact that it's so flexible means that it's always going to do something kind of nice. And so that's the reason that it's kind of overperformed. There's also, you know, all those aura-based removal spells or game-breaking artifacts running around. So the fact that this is just great on turn two and then as a main deck answer to all of those later in the game is why that's performing so well. Number six, Ossification. This is that white removal spell and just a great card. Rebel Salvo, number five, the uh, red deal five, but it's cheaper if you have equipment. Again, just these are just rate monsters, um, just efficient removal that you're going to take early and often. Number four, Evolving Adaptive. That's the one I was talking about. Single green for the zero zero that grows based on oil counters and checks power and toughness of creatures as they come in to help it grow. Just an amazing card. Um, number three, Cinder Slash Ravager. Again, we talk about the dangers of picking gold cards early. This is the red-green gold uncommon, the 5-5 Vigilance that sweeps for one, but just incredible card. And so it's going to be at 62.7% win rate. It's going to be better than basically any common. And so I would actually take it over any common, I think. Even though it's a little bit committal, this might be a reason also to sometimes splash where if you don't get there on red-green, you can actually put it in a different deck and pick up a couple sources because that sweep is so nice. And like the card, yes, it's best when you can play it for cheap uh, because you have some oil counters. But at six mana, six mana, five, five vigilance that can hopefully kill a creature or two. Um, you can also post combat it. That's still just worth it. So um, amazing card there. Number two, Annex Entry. And so Annex Entry, the 1-4 toxic creature that removes an opposing creature that costs three or less. Because the game is about curving out, this can answer your opponent's two drop or three drop. Also, if your opponent plays a four Mirrodin creature, this just eats it entirely. It never comes back. And the fourth toughness means it's pretty hard to kill. So it, what I've seen is that the Annex Entry, what happens is you play it and it just locks the creature away for a lot longer than you would expect. And because there's aura-based removal in the format too, like that doesn't help against the sentry. Like the creature's still just gone. You, you can't get rid of the sentry that way. So it just is amazing. And then number one, Bladehold Warwhip at 63.5%. This card's performing like at rare levels. It's really, really strong. It's the red-white gold and common equipment. Comes in, you have a 2-2 double strike. You can move it around. It also makes all your equipment cost less. It's just incredible. Again, kind of like the Cinder Slash Ravager. I would take this over any common. Even though it's two colors, um, the win rate is just there. And it's just going to, like, when you play it on turn three, it's just going to win a lot of those games. And it's a great top deck later in the game because giving your big creatures double strike and moving it around is just going to allow you to win board stalls. So it's just a fantastic card and really incredible. But then we look at the bottom 10 uncommons. Again, most of these you just want to avoid, but a few of them are just put in the wrong spots. Number 10 uh, worst card is Reject Imperfection. This is the cancel. It's just not a cancel format. 
Um, it does proliferate if the thing costs three or less mana, but again, we've talked about how proliferate isn't really there. You don't want to leave up a bunch of mana for counter spells, and so it's a card that I think in general you just don't want to play. Number nine, Atmosphere Surgeon. This is the one in a blue two one. When you cast a non-creature, it gets an oil uh, counter and you can jump things into the air at sorcery speed. The body is just really weak. So what happens oftentimes is just a two one that you just trade off with your opponent's stuff. Not really that impressive. And then you can usually do better with like the oil matters cards. It's part of the reason that the Azette decks are really weak is that cards like Atmosphere Surgeon are aggressive, but they don't block, but also they don't attack that well. The 2-1 flyer also just trades with random other 1-1 flyers. It can't go past like a Gitaxian Raptor in the air, all these types of things. Number eight is Prosthetic Injector. This is the uh, one mana equipment and equip for one. It gives something plus one plus two and toxic one. The problem is that it doesn't help get your toxic creature through already. So in general, it doesn't enable any attacks that weren't already there. Sometimes if the creatures that we're fighting were at parity, like if you have a 2-2 and your opponent has a 2-2, yes, the prosthetic injector is going to help there. But then your opponent just plays like a 2-3 and you're back to square one. So it's not usually worth going down a card for that. And while pumping defense is nice, the fact that it's kind of all in on toxic means it's not really going to do the job. You can't, if you have a ton of good evasion and ways to push through your creatures, you can use it as kind of an extra toxic spell. But that's more like in the blue-black, all-in, cheap-to-the-ground, evasive, toxic creatures deck. Um, Nahiri's Sacrifice uh, at number 7. This is the one in red sweeper. You sacrifice something, deal X damage based on the mana cost to any number of creatures. Or like split it up amongst any number of creatures. Sacrificing your board to deal damage is just not good. And uh, you're going to be constantly trading. So... If you do have something that's really expensive and fantastic, then you don't want to sacrifice it anyways. So this is one of those ones I just would never play it. The only reason I would board in Nahiri's Sacrifice is if I see like two or three aura-based removal spells from my opponent and they have a bunch of like cheap small things. Then it's a pretty good sideboard card. Outside of that very specific scenario, I would not put it in my deck. Noxious Assault at number six. This is the three green green pseudo overrun in the set, giving plus two plus two at sorcery to all your creatures. Whenever they get blocked, your opponent gets a uh, poison counter. The problem is your opponent just has so much control over the card. I talked about it in the set review where the more I thought about it, the lower I was on the card. Um, if all your creatures have toxic, then this does guarantee poison counters equal to the number of creatures you have. So that part of it's nice. The problem is that's just not how it plays in the format. Even when you try to make all your creatures have toxic, it just doesn't come together that way. And if you do have that insane of a deck, usually you don't need a Noxious Assault to win anyways so it's bad you you can play it in the bad versions of these toxic decks but then it's bad and in the good versions you probably don't need it number five veil of assimilation now this is a 46.7 percent win rate which is nine percent worse than the average this is the one in a white artifact that when it or another artifact enters gives something plus one plus one in vigilance until in a turn i've been playing uh this card sometimes in like the blue white all artifact decks and if you truly have like 18 artifacts in your deck i think actually this card can be pretty good especially if you can pump something that is naturally a good blocker anyways like if you combo this with the indoctrination attendant or you have like the three four on blocks but it's coming in it's making an artifact it's allowing you to keep attacking this type of thing then the veil of simulation i think can be pretty good um, but it's super narrow so i would only take it like on the wheel 
if you're already in those blue-white decks. At number four is Tamiyo's Logbook. Um, this is the two and a blue artifact. The problem is it does nothing on its own. You can be five and a blue tap and draw card. That sounds pretty bad. Now, it does cost one less to use that for every artifact you have besides the Logbook, which means it kind of looks like a Jota's Codex in a little bit of a way, which was that build around in Dominator United. But getting Domain on the Codex to make it cost like one or two mana was a lot easier than it is to get all the artifacts in play to make the logbook cost one or two mana. And, you know, getting it down on turn three and then doing nothing until you start activating it doesn't really matter the cost three. Like this card could cost six and it would be almost the same card. So the fact that it's cheap doesn't really do anything. I think you just don't want to play the logbook. Uh, I think it can be an okay sideboard card in the blue white artifact deck for slow, like slow matchups. Um, but the problem even there is your opponent's probably being very reactive to you if they're slow, so they're killing a lot of your stuff, which means the logbook's going to be expensive to use. So even there, it's not very good. Number three is Expand the Sphere in terms of the worst uh, uncommons. This is the three and a green. Look at the top six. You can put lands into play off, off of those um, up to two times and proliferate for any times you decline. It tends to be you just don't want to be ramping on turn four to try to get to six mana. In addition, I've mentioned how the proliferate is often not worth an, a card itself. This doesn't impact the board. Um, just not really what the format's about. So you'd best, I think, to just not play this one. Again, there's small use cases where if you happen to have some Twilights or things like that, I could see playing um, Expand the Sphere. The problem is, even in those types of decks, you're not even getting the lands all the time off the top, and then you're just left with some proliferates. So Expand the Sphere has an even worse rate win rate than Phyrexian Atlas, that manolith we talked about earlier. So if you want that type of effect, I'd kind of more look to the Atlas and just avoid the Sphere entirely. And then Bat of Rebirth, number two worst uncommon. This is the single black artifact, and once you get four oil counters on it, you can pay two and a black. Remove those four to bring something back from the dead. And whenever an artifact or creature dies on your control, you put an oil counter on it. The problem is it's just so slow and you basically need to get eight oil counters on it and spend seven total mana to get back two things. So uh, that's really hard to do and you're not even getting that much for it. And that's like now you're doing it, right? For getting back one creature, you paid four mana and it's taken a while to do that, you're better off just playing um, the five mana reanimate spell, return from the vat or whatever it's called, vat, em vat emergence. And the number one worst uncommon that you basically should never play is Fawn of Progress. This is the single blue artifact that comes in with two oil counters and you can pay three tap to mill your opponent for that much. I've mentioned how proliferate just hasn't gotten there not really what you should be doing in the format in general now this is a proliferate payoff but it doesn't impact the board and even in super grindy matchups like you can just play some other card that's going to do better like you could play like a cruel grimnark or something where it's an expensive creature that you know um, can take over the game and then you don't have to play fauna progress so that card is just horrible and i would recommend never putting fauna progress in your deck as I mentioned, this episode is pretty crunchy in terms of the data, but again, hopefully there's a lot to take away from it. The last portion that I'm going to talk about is the overrated and underrated cards, and I think it's very, very valuable because it allows you to know which cards are not being taken when, so that you can draft with them in mind and 
think about what might table and take the really underrated cards on the wheel and have that as a plan and understand that that's kind of something you could build towards. Let's start with the overrated cards. These are the cards you kind of want to avoid because they're just taken too highly. And because people are taking these cards early, it means that when you're trying to take other cards along these lines, you're just not going to be as successful with those strategies. You're going to see a lot of like green and black cards and things like that. Toxic commons um, that are overrated, which means in general, like the green, black, toxic decks, you just want to avoid them more often than not because players are taking these cards early because they look good, but they actually aren't very good. So number 10, most overrated card. Oh, before I jump into it. In addition, so what I'm going to do is I'm going to read the Elsa number and the win percent. So the most overrated cards are the cards that are taken the earliest with the lowest win percent, but that takes that factors in how late they're taken and the win percent. So you might have a card that has a higher win percent, but is more overrated because it's taken really highly. Or you might have a card uh, that has a lower win percent, but it goes a little bit later. But what I've done, the way I calculated these overrated and underrated is I numbered every single card in terms of win rate and then every single card in terms of their ALSA values and then put them in number from 1 to 200 and whatever based on the number of cards in the set. The biggest difference between where they're taking an ALSA and their win rate gives me a number. And then based on that difference value, uh, I was able to see what was the most over and underrated. But this work is based on uh, Redditor Doragon's work and I first became aware of it in Brothers War, and I really like the way that it frames the data. With all that said, let's jump into overrated top 10, the most overrated commons. At number 10, most overrated, we have Vanishing Eternity, which its ALSA is 6.06, um, which means it's taken around average uh, six pick. Uh, it only has a 50.8% win rate. We did talk about how you know it could be a 23rd card, but what this is saying is you're not going to wheel it quite as much as you expect. But that's okay because you kind of don't want to play it anyways. Um, number nine, it draws Skull Bomb. We've talked about that one with the 6.7 also. So it does go pretty late, but again, with 49% win rate, just not a card you're interested in unless you really can build around it, really play into more of that mid-range strategy. Um, at number eight, Fraction Atlas. So with an also of seven, it's still taken somewhat highly for the fact that it has a really bad win rate at 46%. Um, that might also be partly... You know, it goes kind of late, but then you're trying to kind of splish splash around. You don't know what's going on. So it kind of fits in that strategy of kind of a failed draft in the first place, but only take it when you're trying to splash bombs. Number seven overrated is Thirsting Roots. Makes sense. We're seeing a lot of the same cards as the worst cards because if people don't know they're bad, they're still just taking them way too highly. So Thirsting Roots at Elsa 6.66, 48% win rate. Um, just not a great card. Kind of just a tap land that doesn't do very much. Number six, this is a new one. This is Pestilent Siphoner. This is the one black, one, one flyer with Toxic One. Now, it's not a bad card, but it has an ALSA of 3.98, which means it's taken very aggressively and only has a 53.4% win rate. So what this means is these black Toxic decks are getting scooped up way sooner than they need to, uh, they should be. And so it's one reason to kind of avoid black for now is the fact that it's overdrafted. But Siphoner here is, I think, one of the key commons to those decks, but because it's so overdrafted and contested, I think that is A, bringing its win rate way down here, and B, people haven't quite figured out, myself included, these black toxic decks, 
because it's a little bit hard to figure out like are you really going for corrupted or are you trying to get your opponent to the 10 poison counters and how do you navigate and synergize your draft to those very specific levels at number five we have annihilating glare um again not a horrible card but it's taken way too aggressively for how good the card is this is the single black and sack a creature artifact to destroy target creature or planeswalker or you can pay an additional four mana it's kind of like um power stone fracture in that again it's not a bad card per se but people just like to take removal early even if it's bad removal and this falls into that camp here has an all set 4.35 with a 53 percent win rate so it is still below average um but also on top of that like you don't really want to be sacrificing your board and even so folks are still taking it very highly and number four is plague nurse with an also 5.71 and a 51 percent win rate this is the three green three four with toxic two and you can up the toxic count on your other creatures this card is just not that good because while the format of three four is fine with the toxic two it's not going to get through that much also dies to hex gold slash and it doesn't enable and tax any attacks that weren't already there and so it's just not really a card you want to be putting in your toxic decks you can play it if you need a curve filler um, but the win percentage is pretty bad in the card and it, it's not even tabling like it probably should it should be a backup plan but if this is your backup plan you're probably not even going to always see it on the wheel so just be aware of that um, but again that's probably fine because you don't want to be playing the plague nurse anyways number three prophetic prism again not a card that's absolutely horrible uh but being taken sooner than it should have i think partly because in the past prophetic prism can be quite a card it has an also 5.7 that is a little bit late for this particular card but at a 51 percent win rate that is pretty low below average because you don't want to be tapping out to just cycle and fix your mana prophetic prism not really a card you want to be doing but if you do have those bombs to splash i think it does have some uses where you can play this a little bit later maybe on turn five or six then it's going to enable yours your splashed bomb and can work like that it's also a little bit better if you have ways to sacrifice artifacts for value going with the annihilating glare going with the uh cutthroat centurion the two black two two that can sack artifacts to grow so it does have some combos in the format but it's not really a card that you want in your deck in the first place so for the most part avoid the prism number two most overrated is the icker spit basilisk um again kind of just a bad toxic creature but then people want to take it very highly uh relative to when it should be taken also 5.37 with a 51 percent win rate so if you see it it's probably not gonna it might not wheel it's not really a backup plan even for your toxic decks but again probably not a card you really want in your deck in the first place only having that 51 percent win rate and then the number one most overrated card and we talked about this before how it's not really a great game plan to start is prologue to pyresis also 6.24 so it's not picked that highly but it has a 48.6 win percent so you don't really want to be spending a bunch of mana to cycle and give your opponent a poison counter best to just not pick that if you are in the deck that really wants to kind of play it as a burn spell fine but probably better to just wait till the format kind of evens out and you can just get this you know last pick every single time which is closer to probably when it should be taken so it's good what this tells us and sort of the takeaway because it's useful to know the cards but when you see cards like annihilating glare and packs pestilence siphoner those cards are going to get snapped up much sooner so you kind of want to avoid some black and green toxic cards right now 
because they're very overdrafted and you're going to be fighting folks for cards that aren't even particularly good. These cards are kind of signs to people to be drafting green-black toxic-style decks when they shouldn't be. So even when you see the better cards for those types of decks, you're going to be fighting others more often than not because they're overrating these cards. So it's very good to know that and to be you know, prioritizing right now the red and white cards that are still underrated and still, you know, the top 10 uh, commons that you can draft more readily anyways. So speaking of the underrated top 10, let's go through these again based on the also versus when they're taken. At number 10, we have Shrapnel Slinger, also have 7 and a 54.8 win percent. So a very just actual average card, but one that you can get quite a bit late. Um, this is the one in red 2-2. You can sack a creature and kill an opposing artifact. Really nice versus those blue-white uh, artifact decks that are kind of all in on like Eye of Malkator. I really have enjoyed taking this card kind of aggressively um, in best of three drafts because if nothing else, it's an amazing sideboard card and keeps me going red, which I really like to be in red because of its deep roster of good commons. Um, number nine, we have the Autonomous Furnace. Uh, this is the red... The Red Sphere Tapland. Um, also have 7.35 with a win rate of 54.3%. This is one of those ones where the win rate is raised, I think, just because red decks happen to be good. Um, but people aren't picking it that uh, aggressively, so you can end up with maybe two of these in your red decks, no problem. And I think they do add some nice win percent overall because, uh, you know, if you're playing an aggressive game plan and you do happen to flood out, this can turn into a new card and you can continue to go from there. Number eight, most underrated, is Free From Flesh. Uh, this is the single red for the plus two, plus two, and put two oil counters on a creature. 6.73 also with a 56.1% win rate, so a little above average. Is a combat trick you can expect to get a little bit later and is nice because it's going to combo with some of those really great oil creatures. And because it only costs one mana, you can, you know, combine that and still develop your board. And so when you're in red, just know that you can get these combat tricks quite a bit later for how good they are so you don't need to prioritize them um, and if you happen to have some creatures that work really well with combat tricks like if you have something that has first strike then you can know that goes up if you have something that really benefits from oil counters you know you can get any free from fleshes that are opened early on and will probably wheel so that's all nice at number seven we have titanic growth uh, this has a straight alsa of seven and a 55 percent win rate so it's literally just middle of the road but you can get Titanic Gross on the wheel. Um, it's a fine card to put in your deck, especially if you just care about power and toughness. I found to play one Titanic Growth in green, white, or green, red to be serviceable, either to push through, like the toxic creature is going to get blocked, so Titanic Growth is good, or your red, green, beefy creatures get double blocks, so Titanic Growth is great there. If you do happen to have a Trampler, then it's even better, so kind of look for that one. If you need it, it's fine filler. Number six, most underrated, that Furnace Strider. Um, also 5.87 so you're going to get to see these a little bit later towards the pack and if you get one like you know picks five six seven it's a reason to kind of be in red because you know you're probably going to see those striders right now because they're underrated it has a whopping you know 57.6 win rate so at a common level that's kind of bringing up the win rate a lot from that common um, similarly axiom engraver this one even has a later also of 6.15 uh, and similar 57.4 win rate this is the one on red, one three that can rummage twice. Um, and it's just a really great card. I mentioned how in this format, 
kind of want to exchange resources, make sure you get on board early, but then sometimes you just flood out. The Axiom Engraver is great because it can block opposing tutus early, and then just make sure that you don't flood out when maybe your opponent would. And so it can help you just win games on its own from there. Number four, most underrated, is Blazing Crescendo. This is the one in red combat trick, plus three, plus one. It exiles the top card. You can play that until the end of your next turn. So it's basically a one in a red combat trick plus draw card. It has an ALSA of 6.64 and a 56.8% win rate. I think partly people don't know how to play around this card quite yet. I've found that with some of the combat tricks, it's best to just not play into them all the time. Um, but this one is kind of tricky because sometimes you really want to play into it because it makes your opponent's curve awkward like if they hit a spell off the crescendo they're incentivized to play it which can mess with their curve whereas sometimes um, a little bit later like in the mid game you don't want to block because then they get to double spell on you with the crescendo so it might be better to just race and then try and block but it regardless the card is really quite excellent and you can pick one up late so because it and free from flesh are on the list just know that like these red combat tricks you can probably end up with like one to three of them pretty much for free um, because people aren't taking them so if you're interested in that market, then um, you can draft with that in mind and take the good creatures and get the combat tricks later. Number three is Volshock Splitter. This is the three red for Mirrodin equipment, and it gives plus two plus oh. So the four mana four two, essentially. It has an also of 7.26 and a win rate of 55%. So exactly average, but you can get it really late. And it has some nice synergies and combos with, you know, red-white equipment. And so the fact that you're going to get this equipment later in red-white means that if you can get um, some of the equipment payoffs, you can expect to see the Volshock splitters that are open at the table to wheel. So like if you know you're in the red equipment deck, you can take a strong red card in your picks one or two, usually get the splitter to wheel, and then you're going to get that. And with that in mind, you don't need to take four drops as aggressively because you know the splitter is going to come back. Now, speaking of four drops, still number two underrated is Chimney Rabble. Now, this one is picked earlier than the Splitter, also 5.93, so a little bit late, but not that late. But with 59.6% win rate, it means that, again, you can kind of expect that you're going to see some of these at some point. They're not always going to wheel, um, but they, they often do. And uh, you, when you're drafting red, you kind of want to leave that four drop spot for the chimney rabbles and then just pick them up when you see them and then just kind of take as many as you get because they're quite excellent. And then number one, um, most underrated common is Hazardous Blast with an also of 7.64 at 57.5% win rate. Just an excellent card, clears the way um, and really is quite fantastic. People aren't taking this card, they're sleeping on it, but I mentioned how both halves of the card are quite excellent at different stages of the game. So you kind of just happy to have one of these in any red deck and it can steal wins out of nowhere. So those are kind of those top tens. And what it really reinforces is that you really want to lean red because if I look at this um, literally, I think eight, maybe nine. Yeah, nine of the top 10 underrated commons are red. And then if we look at the overrated commons, they're green and black. And so if you avoid kind of these green-black toxic cards and draft more red cards, you're just going to win a lot more because you're going to get more powerful cards later on the wheel than, and everyone's fighting over these black toxic creatures. So that's what this data tells me and can really help you in your, your drafts. Um, for the overrated side, for the, or so let's, let's round things out with the uncommons. So for the top 10 overrated, 
Um, number 10, we have Mere Convert. Now, again, not a horrible card. This is a two mana, two, one toxic one. You can tap pay two life to add one mana of any color, um, but it's also is 2.97. So it's taken very, very early, like a really premium card, but it has a 53.6 win rate. So it's okay, a little less good than average. I think the life loss on this really adds up pretty quickly. It is a two drop, but um, it's not like the best two drop. And on top of that, it's just not a great card. So what this means is just maybe bump it down to your pick order. Don't take them as often because you're probably overrating this card because it looks, I think, a lot better than it actually is. Similarly, at number nine is Trawler Drake. This is the two and a blue. Zero, zero comes in with an oil counter. Those function as plus one, plus one counters, and you get a counter every time you play a non-creature spell. Again, not a horrible card. It has a win rate of 52.8%, so a little below average, um, but it has an also 3.5. I also have first picked many Trawler Drakes, so this surprises me that it's doing so poorly. Probably just because it comes in as a 1-1, you end up just not being able to grow up quickly enough, or your opponent just removes it by the time they actually have to answer it. So it just is probably underperforming. And so uh, if you're falling into that trap like, like I am, uh, just lower that in your pick order a little bit and take a different card that has better overall stats. Number eight, this one doesn't surprise me, Atmosphere Surgeon. Um, this is the 2-1 that jumps in the air. We talked about how it's not a very good card and for various reasons, um, but it has an also 5 and a 50% win rate. So just not very good. It looks like a decent card, but probably just one that you shouldn't take um, other than maybe just needing a two drop. And if you do need that, you should be taking it later. You might not see it later because it's also is higher than we should take it. So probably just basically never take this card and play it is my recommendation until things adjust. At number seven, Paladin Predation. This is the, the big old seven mana, six, seven toxic six that can't be blocked by creatures with um, power two or less. Now, again, a pretty bad card at 50% win rate and an also of five. So it is taken at a medium rate, but around that same rate, you could be getting something like a Furnace Strider, which is actively good um, as a top-end threat rather than Paladin Predation. So kind of just don't take this one. Pick other cards for your mid to late game, and it's going to be a lot better than that. And number six, we have Infested Flesh Cutter. This is the Phyrexian equipment. It's not for Mirrodin, and it's the one in a white, equipped two in a white. It gives a creature plus two, plus oh, and when it attacks, you make a might. It's just too slow, too clunky um, to actually be good enough. It has an also 4.26 and a win rate of 51%. So it's below average win rate. It's taken pretty aggressively because it looks like maybe it does something, but it's just too easy to answer. If you ever can uh, break up the equipment that your opponent's trying to equip to, then it just doesn't do enough. So I would recommend, you know, just avoid it. Don't take that card because it's just not a good card. Again, another kind of trap up here, and I've been tricked by it too, is the Necrosquito, uh, also 3.98 with a win rate of 51%. So again, below average. This is the uh, three and a black 2-2 flyer, essentially, that grows when an artifact or creature you control dies. I'm guilty of picking it really early too. I think part of the problem is that it's also picked early and maybe put in decks that aren't supported. It's mostly just a red-black sacrifice card where you have control over growing the Necrosquito. I had a deck where it was pretty easy to grow it to like an 8, 8, 9, 9, 10, 10 reliably, and it was very good there. So I think it's probably being put in the wrong spots, um, but being taken pretty aggressively, and maybe it shouldn't be. Number four, Venom's Brutalizer. Um, this card is taken extremely aggressively because I think it looks really good. Um, this is the uh, two green green, four, four, toxic three. When it enters, you can pay one and a green to proliferate. 
don't really care about the proliferate text, but a four mana, four, four toxic three looks really, really great. But it has an all sub 2.85 and only a 53% win rate. The problem with the card is it dies to hex gold slash. That's really what's going wrong with it. And then on top of it, at the end of the day, it's it's just a four mana four four. It's all, not always great in green either because it's only good in the green decks that care about toxic. Now, if you are in green white, the card is going to perform well, but it's not worth like second picking when you could take like a really good removal spell over it, for example. So probably what should happen is just don't take this card um, because if you're taking it, you can only take it really early unless the pack is just horrendously bad, in which case, okay, maybe. But it doesn't really have the stats to back it up. Uh, so just be aware of that. At number three, most overrated on commons, the Ravenous Necrotitan, also a 4.09 and a 51% win rate. This is the two black black 6-6, six, six, which is huge. Uh, unless you have Corrupted Online, you sack a creature when it enters. The problem is, I, and I played this card once at the very beginning of the format, even with some Toxic and things, it's really hard to have um, Toxic Online reliably by turn four. And sacrificing a creature is a huge liability in a format where board presence matters. You're probably going to have to sacrifice something at least somewhat real unless you build perfectly around the card. And uh, the kind of the joke of the card is that the best things to sacrifice is probably like Crawling Chorus. And if you had that then and it came down early, you probably actually do happen to have uh, the Corrupted online. So the things you really want to sacrifice probably enable Corrupted. So in games where you don't draw both, um, and have the perfect curve, the Necro Titan is just kind of going to rot in your hand and be pretty bad. So I'd recommend kind of staying away from that one. Number two, Prosthetic Injector. Talked about that one again as being just not a very good card. 50% uh, win rate and also 4.38, the, the artifact that gives Toxic. Just don't take this card early. Like if you could wheel it and you have the perfect deck, then you could actually bring up that win rate, I think, a bit to make it an average playable. But everyone's just kind of taking this card early and it's not actually that good. And the number one most overrated card, and I think because it's good, it's been good before, it looks really good, but it's just not a good card, is Thrumming Bird. So Thrumming Bird has an ELSA 3.6, so again taken in the first few picks out of most packs, but it only has a 50% win rate. So it's really quite below average, and unless you're able to really use the proliferate, which is incredibly hard since it doesn't help at all on its own, Thrumming Bird is just a trap in the format. And so you can see there's a lot of these traps in the format um, every single card on the overrated uncommon list is blue black or green or really cares about toxic so it, it really shows the texture of the format right now and what everyone's valuing is like these green black blue proliferate toxic decks <clears throat> and really going for that and fighting over it when really you should be drafting white and red cards and attacking your opponent as the format develops we might see that maybe some of these are picked less aggressively and fall off of the overrated list as people find out that the setup cost for all of these is not actually worth it. But now you're ahead of the curve listening to this and you can understand what you should be looking for, what you should be drafting because you wanna kind of avoid these traps. And then to wrap things out, what are the top 10 underrated uncommons so that you can know what to look out for, what you might be able to expect getting later than everyone else to build you know, the best possible deck. So at number 10 is Exuberant Fusling. Haven't talked about this one yet, but this is the single red 01 trample. And it comes with an oil counter that function as plus one plus O. And whenever another artifact or creature dies, you get another oil counter. So this is has an also 4.59 with uh, a win rate of 58%. 
So it's above average for sure, and it's taken you know middle of the pack um, when really it's functioning more like a second or third pick a lot of the time. So Exuberant Fuseling, I found really great success with this card, specifically in red-black. Um, but also, you know, you can just play this early in like a red-white deck and use your other cards to trade off. And eventually it's a one mana, like three, one or four, one that demands to be traded with, with your opponents, like two, three or four drop. And so it really can just really overperform for a single mana. Number nine is Awaken the Sleeper. This is the threat net uncommon and has an also of 7.26 and a win rate of 53.1%. So the reason this is on the list is that it's also is so late. You're often to see this card like last pick. Now, the thing about this being um, such a high Alsa and what you want to think about is that any Awaken the Sleepers that are opened really only go into the red-black deck. So if you can find your way into red-black and you happen to see like an early Awaken the Sleeper, you can know that card will likely wheel. And so you can prioritize the sacrifice outlets. And so even though you only have it at Uncommon, um, if you see one in pack one early on, it means there's a decent chance you're actually going to end up with maybe two of them. And so you might be able to get that red-black sacrifice deck a lot more often than you would think with one of these being at Uncommon. It also blowing up artifact uh, equipment is kind of nice in the set. Um, so it just is going to overperform in that way. And is a secret gold card that allows you to play the red-black, to draft the red-black deck as if um, there was a threat and effect at Common because... The uncommon is taken so late, which is interesting. And, and the reason I mentioned that too is that commons, on average, you're going to see about 2.4 of them per draft, whereas uncommons, you see about one of them per draft. So if you see the Awaken the Sleeper early in the draft, you still have the rest of the draft. And so maybe that by that point, you're more likely to see a second copy. It's almost as if it were a common at that point. Number eight is plated Onslaught. This is the uh, go wide white card, uh, three white white to give your team plus two, a plus one. Um, it has an affinity for artifacts. It has an also of 6.09 and a win rate of 55%. So perfectly average win rate. You're going to see it a little bit later. I, it can fit into the go-wide strategy, specifically kind of like a green-white card. Um, but this is the one you want to pick up late rather than the uh, green fake overrun card. Number seven, Seville Up Pod Sentry, uh, also 5.07 and a win rate of 57%. This is the blue-white gold uncommon. It's the Four mana star five, where star is equal to your number of artifacts as flying. And um, this is the kind of the reason that I've been drafting so much blue-white lately is that no one's really picking the cephalopod sentries accurately. And so I I got one of these like um, 12th pick the other day um, when I was already in blue-white. And the first one I got a little bit later because no one wanted it. Like maybe I got like six pick. And so I was like, wait, great, this is a reason to draft this deck. So folks are kind of avoiding some of the blue-white, even though it has a pretty good win percentage. Um, and so knowing that that is more underdrafted could be a reason to get into that deck. Number six, Oxida Finisher. This one's interesting. So Oxida Finisher is the five red-red, seven-five trample with affinity for equipment. It has an also of 6.43 and a win rate of 55%. So again, decidedly average, but if you happen to be in the red deck and you know that you know Volshock splitters are underrated and you're going to be able to get these other um, equipments pretty late suddenly maybe um, getting an oxidative finisher to wheel and having like it said in the name a finisher um, you can know you can get that a little bit more reliably if you see it in an early pack and it can wheel and then maybe you don't have to pick up some other of those four five six mana plays as aggressively because you know you can get the finisher on the wheel furnace punisher um, also a really nice one. This is the three mana, three, three menace, just good stats. 
Uh, also 4.67, so taken a little bit later, has a 58% win rate. Not much to say about that card, but it's really good, and people aren't taking it that aggressively. I myself have been passing way too many of these, apparently, because um, it's just a pretty good card, and I should be picking them up when I see them like, uh, you know, fourth or fifth pick, rather than letting it go past me. Um, number four, Cinder Slash Ravager. Cinder Slash Ravager, as good as it is, still not picked that early. The Red Green Golden Common, also 3.78 with a 63% win rate. Really great card. Number three, underrated, is Char Forger, the Red Black Uncommon. It's the 2 3 that comes with the 1 1 Buddy. And when something dies, get an oil counter on it, remove three, exile the top card, and play it this turn. Now, it has an also 5.5 and um, a win rate of 57%. So above average win rate and goes pretty late. I think the reason that it's so underrated is that uh, Red Black is a deck that a lot of people haven't figured out yet. Charforger's on this list. Awaken the Sleeper is on this list. So if you're able to build the Red Black um, sort of Cutthroat Centurion style deck, just know that you're probably going to get some of these uh, payoffs later than you might expect. And so when you open them in your opening packs, you can actually kind of look to pivot into that red-black lane, usually by taking something like a hex gold slash early. And then if you happen to see the card later, or you know, people weren't interested in it, then you're gonna get these payoffs mid to late pack um, where you wouldn't if you were in a different color pair. So that's pretty nice. Um, number two, most underrated is swooping lookout. This one also kind of surprising me. I, I know it's a good card, but this is the single white for a one-two flying vigilance. How good is it? Well, it is an also 4.91 and a win rate of 58%. So it's above average win rate by a pretty marginal, like pretty sizable amount. And uh, also nearly five means folks are kind of sleeping on the card. You can you can expect to get it to mid to late pack. Um, maybe not full on the wheel, but um, a lot later than you would expect for a card of this quality. Um, the reason I think it performs so well is that it can both attack and block. And in, that, in this format, again, that is so key. You can time your uh, pump spells with it, either on attacks or blocks, um, so that you can kind of hit your opponent that way. And it single-handedly makes it so your opponent can't ever attack you with a might token without backup. Um, so that that's a lot of use cases for a one-mana card. Um, and also, oftentimes, you know, it comes down on turn one, and it's going to deal your opponent like five damage before they can ever actually need to answer it. And then the number one most underrated card is also the number one best uncommon, Bladehold War Whip. As good as it is with 63.5%, it is taken at also 4.14. I tweeted about this card even before I knew it was the most underrated, that people just keep passing it. I think it looks a little bit worse than it is because it has, you know, all this lens of text. It looks kind of expensive, clunky, you know, we're used to like equipment not actually being that good. This card is just so insanely good. So, you know, take it early and often, but also apparently... If you can get yourself into a red-white lane, you might be able to get a first pick quality card, like fourth or fifth pick in the Bladehold War Whip, and that's how you get the decks with like two or three of them, and it, things are just rolling. So all said and done, like I said, a ton of just chunky raw stats coming your way. What's the point of me talking about all this? Well, that's kind of your state of the format so that you can kind of understand what to be drafting moving forward. Um, right now, prioritize red and white cards, avoid kind of green, blue, and black cards. Now, there are some exceptions, like we look at red-black being a little underdrafted, blue-white being underdrafted, but if you stick to kind of the best decks, again, you know, Gruul, Boros, Lesnia, Wartsov, Azorius, Rakdos, these types of things, going in with the most overrated and underrated cards in mind, there's just a ton of information here to dissect so that you can 
end up with fewer train wrecks, end up with higher card quality for less less cost, essentially, in terms of draft picks, and end up with overall higher card quality than your opponent, simply because you understand what's actually good in the format relative to everyone else. So with that, good luck in your drafts out there, everyone. I do want to uh, just kind of let you know where we're headed in the next couple weeks on the podcast. Um, next week, I'm planning to do a sealed episode. It's not going to be out in time for the sealed qualifier, um, but I'm going to be playing in the sealed qualifier and probably doing some sealed leading up to it. So I'll have some experience in sealed at a point and let you know what I think about the sealed format so that anyone playing the arena open um, early next month is going to be able to do that. Um, and then I think the week after that, I'm going to have a special guest on. So be looking forward to that. I do want to thank my adaptier and above Patreon, uh, Marius, uh, for your continued support. Thanks so much. And to everyone else, thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time on the 40 Card College Podcast.